0: For twelve years, tension built between the British monarchy and Britain's colonies in America. What began as colonial protests over new taxes escalated into violent conflicts between British soldiers and American colonists in New York and Boston. Two years later, a sustained fight was inaugurated with clashes at Lexington and Concord. To many, it was clear that war between the colonies and the Crown was not only inevitable, it had already started. It was not yet called a War of Independence, but for all practical purposes, it was. In the summer of 1775, the British Army in Boston won the Battle of Bunker Hill, the first real engagement in the war that was not yet officially a war. But a colonial force of more than 20,000 militiamen trapped the British Army in Boston and began a siege of the city. The Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia sent a message across the Atlantic Ocean to King George III as a last-ditch effort to avoid all-out war. It was called the Olive Branch Petition, and it did nothing to change the King's mind. In fact, he didn't even read it. He had already proclaimed the colonies to be in rebellion and had authorized the use of force to bring them back into line. Yet at the same time, the British prime minister sent what was called the conciliatory proposal to the colonists to try to avoid a war. The colonists met it with the same response. They didn't even read it. On the surface, both sides said they wanted to avoid a war, but below the surface, it was clear that neither side was willing to make any real concessions. In England, King George called for more troops. He planned to send an armada of ships and thousands of soldiers to put down the rebellion, or maybe by that time, to win a war. In America, the Second Continental Congress appointed one of its members, George Washington, to the post of Commander-in-Chief of the New Continental Army. Washington hurried to Boston. His task was enormous and unprecedented. He needed to transform a rowdy citizen militia into a formal army while conducting a siege against the most powerful army in the world. And then, before he had barely started, the war expanded across 2,000 miles of territory. In the fall of 1775, Washington agreed with a plan to send continental expeditions to capture the Canadian cities of Montreal and Quebec. They had been under British control since the French and Indian War and the goal was to liberate the cities in the hope that the French Canadians would join the American colonists in their fight against the British. In November, 1775, Richard Montgomery and his troops successfully captured Montreal. But 140 miles northeast, Benedict Arnold and his troops struggled mightily with their attack on Quebec. Montgomery went to Arnold's aid, but they were unable to take the city and at the same time the war expanded north into Canada, fighting broke out in the southern colonies for the first time. The southern colonies had been largely free of the escalating violence that plagued New England throughout the 1760s and early 1770s. But as winter halted everything around Boston in 1775, engagements intensified in the south. A Loyalist militia took control of a backcountry outpost in South Carolina called 96. Patriot militias clashed with Loyalist militias at Great Bridge, Virginia, Great Cane Break, South Carolina, and Moores Creek Bridge, North Carolina. And then, less than a week after the battle at Moores Creek Bridge, everything changed outside Boston. A daring mission by the Americans resulted in a shock for the British commanders. The British commander-in-chief made an enormous decision, which caused the colonists to cheer. But their joy was short-lived. In the summer of 1776, the war began in earnest, and the target was no longer Boston. It was New York, and it was a wake-up call beyond anything the colonists expected. From Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the Historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution, with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 2, War of Independence. This podcast is brought to you by the Historic Camden Foundation. And we pose the question, What makes a hero? Courage, honor, sacrifice, a willingness to lay down one's life for a greater cause. More than 240 years ago, thousands clashed in a pine forest in the sweltering South Carolina summer during the American Revolutionary War. Hundreds made the ultimate sacrifice. Go to Camden, South Carolina to visit the hallowed ground of the Camden Battlefield walk the trails that were used by regiments from Maryland and Delaware, England and Scotland, and more. The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield, the Longleaf Pine Preserve, the Kershaw House, where British General Charles Cornwallis made his headquarters, and more. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. March 5th, 1776, Boston, Massachusetts. British commanders awoke to a sight they could scarcely believe. There were American cannons on the heights of Dorchester, Dorchester Heights was a ridge of high ground south of the city and across Boston Harbor. For 11 months, it had been the only piece of ground in the area that was not fortified. It was technically in the colonists' realm of control, but they hadn't done anything substantial with it, until now. It had been an audacious plan, but audacity was what the colonists needed. They outnumbered the British soldiers, but their numbers were made up of militiamen who had volunteered to join the new Continental Army. They didn't go through a rigorous training program to qualify as soldiers. One day, they were local militiamen. The next day, they were Continental Army soldiers. And the Second Continental Congress didn't have the money to fully outfit its army, so the army had to get creative. Throughout the summer and fall of 1775, while the siege of Boston dragged on and on, Colonial Colonel Henry Knox proposed a plan to Commander-in-Chief George Washington. Knox was a great example of a colonial leader during the Revolution. In the fall of 1775, he was 25 years old. His only military experience was some work with the artillery in his local militia unit. But what he lacked in experience, he made up for in imagination, determination, and enthusiasm. In mid-November, 1775, Knox pitched an idea to Washington that needed all three. Knox wanted to lead an expedition to Fort Ticonderoga, retrieve the cannons that were just sitting there doing nothing, and bring them back to Boston. A volunteer force led by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold had captured the fort six months earlier, right after Lexington and Concord. Now, Knox thought he could make the round-trip journey of more than 300 miles in just 20 days. Washington gave the green light, and then he waited. 20 days came and went, and then 30 days, and Washington began to worry that the men of the expedition were lost or dead. As January 1776 began, with no sign of Knox or his men, Washington had to look to the future as well as the present. He knew the British would eventually move against the colony of New York he dispatched his second-in-command, Charles Lee, to start fortifying the heart of the colony. And then, finally, 40 days after Knox began his mission, he and his men arrived at Washington's headquarters in Cambridge. It had been a brutal journey, but they succeeded. They took 58 cannon from Fort Ticonderoga and didn't lose a single one. During the night of March 4th, The Continental Army stealthily moved the guns up to Dorchester Heights. When the British Army woke up on the morning of the 5th, they saw an entire battery lining the hills south of Boston. The British commander, General Howe, was in awe. He said, These fellows have done more work in one night than I can make my whole army do in one month. The next day, March 6th, Howe gave the order to evacuate Boston. The British had been trapped in the city for 11 months. The colonists occupied every inch of ground around the city, and after the cannons appeared on Dorchester Heights, the colonists could now shell the city from multiple angles and pound it to dust. Eleven days after General Howe gave the order, thousands of British soldiers and Boston citizens who were loyal to the crown sailed away. They traveled to Halifax, Nova Scotia, to wait for reinforcements from England. It was the final time British troops set foot in Boston during the Revolution. After being the heart of the rebellion for more than ten years, the conflict was moving south, south to New York and down to the southern colonies. As the siege of Boston had dragged on, General Howe and British Parliament were anxious for any kind of action. Royal governors in the southern colonies of North Carolina and South Carolina were confident that large numbers of people in their territories were loyal to England. The governors believed they could raise huge forces of Loyalist militias. If the Crown could just send a small force of regular soldiers to supplement the militias, they could overwhelm the rebellious minority. With that in mind, General Howe sent his second-in-command, Major General Henry Clinton, to North Carolina. Clinton and a small force of soldiers had sailed out of Boston in January, at about the same time that Washington's second-in-command, Charles Lee, headed to New York. But by the time Clinton arrived in North Carolina, the Loyalist militias had already fought and lost without him. The Loyalists had been beaten by a Patriot militia at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge on February 27th. When Clinton landed in March, the massive militia force he had been promised had scattered. What remained was in tatters. And that was just the first of two big problems. The second was that the bulk of the soldiers Clinton was supposed to use for his southern campaign were reinforcements from England. They had taken longer than expected to assemble, and they slowly straggled into Cape Fear, North Carolina in April and May of 1776. So, Clinton had to sit there and wait, day after day, throughout the rest of March and then April, and then May. When the force was intact, it introduced a new commander to the war, British Major General Charles Earl Cornwallis. Since the timing of the campaign had been ruined, three commanders debated their next move. Along with Clinton and Cornwallis, there was Irish-born Commodore Sir Peter Parker. He was the naval commander whose ships had just delivered Cornwallis' troops. Parker advocated for an attack on Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. The island guarded the entrance to Charleston Harbor, and Parker's information said that the American garrison on the island was weak and undermanned. On June 28th, they launched the attack, and it turned out that Fort Sullivan, the colonial garrison, was neither weak nor undermanned. Earlier in the spring, Congress had appointed Major General Charles Lee, commander of the Southern Department, and sent him from New York to Charleston, South Carolina. As a city with a prominent port, Charleston was one of the keys to the South. And the key to protecting Charleston was protecting the fort on Sullivan's Island. Colonel William Moultrie was in charge of reinforcing the fort, and he manned the garrison with a little more than 400 men. Behind them, in Charleston... General Lee waited with more than 6,000 troops. The battle that day ended up being a cannon duel. The British fleet shelled the colonial fort with an earth-shaking bombardment. For 11 hours, Colonel Moultrie and his men withstood the pounding from the British cannons. The cannonballs did little damage to the fort because it had been reinforced with logs from local palmetto trees. The palmetto walls and the lining of sand between them absorbed the cannonballs without shattering. Meanwhile, the colonial cannons blasted the British fleet and did severe damage. The waterways around Sullivan's Island were deceptively treacherous. And beyond them, there were swamps and sandbars. When British ground troops couldn't gain a foothold on the island, General Clinton called off the attack. The British retreated, and the first battle between the British and the American colonists in the South was a colonial victory. It would be one to savor, because it wouldn't happen again for a long time. General Clinton, General Cornwallis, and their men sailed north to reunite with General Howe for the campaign against New York. British forces would return to the South two years later, but by then, the war would have a distinctly different quality. And, six days after the Battle of Sullivan's Island, the colonial cause took on a new quality. Throughout the early part of the summer of 1776, members of the Second Continental Congress debated a monumental question. Should the British colonies in America declare their independence and form a new nation of their own. Nothing like it had ever succeeded. The idea sparked vigorous and heated discussion, and by early July, the supporters of immediate independence were winning. On July 1st, the day before the members voted on a resolution, John Adams rose to address his countrymen.
1: Before God, I believe the hour has come. My judgment proves this measure and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, and all that I am, and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready here to stake upon it. And I leave off as I began, that live or die, survive or perish, I am for the declaration. Independence now, and independence forever.
0: Two days later, Adams wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail, about the result of the history-making vote.
1: Yesterday, the greatest question was decided, which ever was debated in America, and a greater perhaps never was, nor will be decided among men. A resolution was passed, without one dissenting colony, that these united colonies are,
0: and of right ought to be, free, and independent states. On July 4, 1776, members of the Second Continental Congress signed America's founding document, the Declaration of Independence.
2: We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, do solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives,
0: our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The rebellion was now a revolution. The conflict was now a war of independence. The colonists were now Americans, and the armies that would do battle for the next six years to see if all those things would remain true were on the doorstep of their first clash. Those armies took shape in the winter of 1775 and the early spring of 1776. On both sides, volunteers answered the call to arms from across their respective nations, In the colonies, the situation was complicated. The first enlistments were up at the end of 1775, and many of the first volunteers left the army. They may have been passionate about the cause, but they still had homes and farms and families to take care of. It became difficult to recruit new soldiers. Congress could pay little in the form of hard currency, so the soldiers were certainly not going to make a decent wage while serving in the army. An estimated 20,000 militiamen had surrounded the British at Boston in the summer of 1775. Now, as the focus of the war in the North shifted to New York, barely 10,000 Continental soldiers defended the city in the summer of 1776. They were still largely untrained, and very few had seen combat of any kind. They spent the summer building fortifications around Manhattan Island and Long Island in preparation for what would be the first full-scale engagement of the war. Then, in late July, a regiment marched into camp that would set the standard for courage and resilience. The 1st Maryland Regiment would become the heart of George Washington's army and his most reliable soldiers. Maryland was ready to go when the call came. Back in December 1774, five months before Lexington and Concord, and a year and a half before Bunker Hill, Maryland's Provincial Convention ordered males between the ages of 16 and 50 to start training for armed resistance. A year later, in January 1776, Maryland leaders commissioned William Smallwood to recruit, train, and lead the 1st Maryland Regiment. Smallwood was a prominent citizen and a vocal supporter of the Revolution. And in July, 1776, he marched north with more than a thousand men. When they arrived in New York, George Washington placed them on Long Island under the command of General William Alexander. Alexander was a colorful character who claimed that he was the heir to Scottish nobility and he preferred to be called Lord Sterling. That was an interesting coincidence because the men whom Lord Sterling and the Marylanders would face across the battlefield early and often were Scottish Highlanders. In November, 1775, while the British Army in America was trapped in Boston, Parliament sent out the call for volunteers from across the empire. In Scotland, Lieutenant General Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, Chief of Clan Fraser, began recruiting. Fraser was the most recent in a long line of chieftains of Clan Fraser, and it was still a bit of a novel concept that he and his countrymen sided with the British. In the 1300s, the clan supported famous warrior leaders William Wallace and Robert the Bruce in their fight against the British. But by the 1700s, the clan was fighting with the British. Simon Fraser and his regiment served with distinction for the British army in the French and Indian War. Now, Fraser rallied volunteers from Edinburgh, Glasgow, Inverness, and other parts of Scotland, and his recruiting effort was wildly successful. More than 2,000 men signed up for duty, and they formed the 71st Regiment of Foot. In common terms, they were an infantry unit. Informally, they were called Fraser's Highlanders, and they joined 1,000 of their fellow Highlanders from the 42nd Regiment of Foot on the journey to America. The 42nd had one of the best nicknames in military history, the Black Watch. The nickname came from their dark clothing rather than some sinister old world legend, but it was great nonetheless. The Highlanders already had reputations as fierce fighters, and in America, they would more than live up to that reputation, often against the Marylanders. In New York, the work continued nonstop all summer. For the Americans, with a small army and no navy, New York was one of the worst places to try to defend. Lots of people thought it shouldn't be defended at all. The task was impossible. And if it was impossible, the Continental Army shouldn't waste time, effort, and manpower in the attempt. But realistically, giving up a city like New York without a fight even if winning was impossible, wasn't an option. The Americans constructed fortifications on Manhattan Island to protect the city as well as to guard the Hudson River on one side and the East River on the other. Across the East River was the real hazard, the westernmost section of Long Island called Brooklyn. In the 1770s, there was a ridge of high ground in Brooklyn that was called Brooklyn Heights, and it was perfect for enemy guns. If the British took Brooklyn Heights, they could do exactly what the Americans did at Boston. They could place cannon on the ridge and force the evacuation of New York, or bombard it into submission. If Brooklyn Heights fell, the game was over for the Americans. General Washington's officers built a series of crude forts on Brooklyn Heights to do two things defend the area against British ground troops if they tried to storm the island on foot and to batter British ships if they tried to sail up the East River. In addition, if the British tried to sail right up to Manhattan, the Americans sunk a few ships in the water with the hope that the British ships would smash into the wrecks. Beyond that, the Americans could merely hope and pray. They had done as much as they could with their limited resources. Only time would tell if it would be enough. But long before the test arrived, George Washington, the steadfast, dignified commander was worried. At the end of May 1776, three full months before the campaign for New York began, he wrote a letter to his brother that said, We expect a very bloody summer, and I am sorry that we are not, either in men or arms, prepared for it. One month after Washington wrote those words, 45 British ships sailed into lower New York Bay and anchored at Staten Island. New Yorkers, both Loyalists and Rebels, and the Continental Army, could only stand and marvel at the spectacle. For the next six weeks, an armada of 400 ships sailed up to Staten Island. Maryland rifleman Daniel McCurtain wrote, I could not believe my eyes. The whole bay was full of shipping as ever it could be. I declare that I thought all of London was afloat. The first to arrive were Commander-in-Chief William Howe's ships. They were the ones that had departed Boston three months earlier and had been stationed at Halifax, Nova Scotia ever since. After the arrival of Howe's ships in mid-July came the fleet of reinforcements from England, which included more than 2,000 Scottish Highlanders. Then, Sir Peter Parker's fleet delivered the troops who had fought at the Battle of Sullivan's Island in South Carolina. After that, came the final arrivals, a fleet of thousands of Hessian auxiliaries from Germany who had been hired by Parliament. By the end of August, General William Howe had 25,000 troops at his disposal. The Americans had fewer than half that number, and they were spread out all over Manhattan and Brooklyn, and they couldn't possibly defend every option for a British attack. General Howe chose Long Island and Brooklyn for his assault, and the night before his troops began to move, the Americans perceived a dark omen of things to come. A terrifying thunderstorm pounded New York. It was one of the most severe storms anyone could remember. Thunder rolled and cracked and boomed overhead. Torrents of rain lashed the islands, and lightning killed several people, which some Americans took as a bad sign about the battle that was on its way. The following day, General Howe started landing his troops on Long Island. Over the next three days, the British ferried 15,000 troops from Staten Island to Long Island. General Washington sent a group of reinforcements across the East River from Manhattan to Long Island, and he eventually made the trip himself to view the defenses. After his tour, he ordered another batch of reinforcements to come across from Manhattan. That brought the total number of colonial defenders to about 7,000, less than half of the British force. But among those reinforcements were the men from Maryland and Delaware who would earn places of esteem in American history. The Americans moved forward from their original line of forts at Brooklyn Heights. They now occupied a ridge of steep hills further inland called Gowanus Heights. The hills were covered by thick woods, and there were only a couple passes through the heights. The Americans probably couldn't stop the British, but they could inflict a lot of punishment from their positions. On the night of August 26, 1776, General Howe gave the order for a night march, and the Battle of Brooklyn began. About 7,000 British troops moved through the night toward the western edge of the battle lines, right next to Gowanus Bay and in the area that is now Greenwood Cemetery. In the center, another 5,000 troops, mostly Hessians, moved up Flatbush Road. At 2 a.m. on August 27th, the British troops on the western edge attacked a small American outpost and sent its men running. The American commander on that side of the line Lord Stirling rushed forward with his men to occupy the high ground in front of the British to block their advance. A soldier from the Maryland Fifth Company wrote later, The enemy then advanced towards us, upon which Lord Stirling immediately drew us up in a line and offered them battle in the true English taste. The British army then advanced within about 300 yards of us and began a very heavy fire from their cannon and mortars, for both the balls and shells flew very fast, now and then taking off ahead. The British moved slowly and seemed to be content to let their cannons do most of the work throughout those dark hours in the early morning. There was fierce fighting at a spot that would be called Battle Hill, but even then, the British didn't seem to be in a hurry to overrun the thin American line. As the sun rose, the fight shifted to the center. At 9 a.m., the 5,000 Hessians attacked up the two main roads, Flatbush Pass and Bedford Pass, that ran through the middle of Gowanus Heights. The Americans put up a tremendous fight, but there were fewer than 2,000 Continental soldiers versus 5,000 Hessians. Again, as with the fight on the end of the American line, the Hessians in the center did not press the attack and try to rout the American defenders. Major Mordecai Gist of the 1st Maryland Regiment wrote, The
1: enemy retreated about 200 yards and halted, and the firing on each side ceased.
0: From the western edge to the center of the line, the British force pressed against the American force but did not try to destroy it. And it was then the Americans realized they had a fatal problem. There were four main routes through Gowanus Heights, a road on the western edge, two in the middle, and one on the eastern edge. All the American officers, from George Washington on down, failed to secure the eastern road. Americans had been engaged in protecting the other three roads throughout the night, but they didn't know that those battles were just diversions. That was why the British troops on the western edge were moving so slowly, and that was why the Hessians in the center had waited until 9 a.m. to launch their attack. The main body of British troops, roughly 10,000 men, had spent the night marching all the way around the American lines to the east. They had captured every American they had seen to make sure they wouldn't be discovered, and they had used Jamaica Pass to slip behind the American lines. The American force on the eastern edge of the line discovered the British column and hurried to intercept it, but the skirmish featured about 650 Americans versus 10,000 British. The Americans quickly retreated toward the line of forts at Brooklyn Heights. By 9 a.m., the British column had advanced to the small town of Bedford. The British fired two cannons as a signal that the real attack should begin. British soldiers in the West and the Hessians in the center crashed against the American lines. With overwhelming manpower and firepower, they steadily drove the Americans back. As the Americans retreated, they learned their situation was truly desperate. William McMillan, A 20-year-old corporal from the 4th Maryland Company wrote later, we were surrounded by Highlanders on one side, Hessians on the other. And the British main column was behind them and was now between them and the American forts on Brooklyn Heights. The British main column moved in from the east. The Hessians pushed hard against the center and the British western flank drove against the heaviest American lines. The three British forces funneled the Americans back toward one narrow strip of land that became the only hope of escape. As American units from the center streamed toward the escape route, they were slowed by the rough terrain. They had to slog through marshland and wade across a creek. If something wasn't done to help them, they would be caught and decimated. The troops who began the day closest to the escape route were gonna have to make a stand. The main body of their army, by a route we never dreamed of, had entirely surrounded us and scattered all our men, except the Delaware and Maryland battalions. Lord Sterling ordered units from Maryland and Delaware to take the action that would elevate them to mythical status in American military history. They would be the forerunners of units like the 20th Maine, that saved Little Round Top for the Union Army during the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. The 101st Airborne, that held out at Bestone during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, and many others. In the cacophony of cannon fire and musket fire and running and screaming men, Lord Sterling shouted at roughly 400 men and told them to charge. British General Cornwallis was converging on the escape route with more than 2,000 soldiers, most of whom were the 71st Regiment, Fraser's Highlanders. When they reached a stone farmhouse, they saw 400 Americans waiting for them. The Americans were outnumbered five to one, and simply making a stand would have been brave enough. But as the Highlanders advanced, the Americans fixed bayonets and charged. It was the first bayonet charge in history by an American army. The 400, led by Lord Sterling and Major Mordecai Gist, slammed into the Highlanders and the battle became a slashing, stabbing, close quarters fight. The Americans pulled back and then charged again. Twice, the men from Maryland and Delaware forced the British to pull back from their positions while the rest of the colonial troops tramped through the marshes to the safety of the American forts on Brooklyn Heights. But as the losses mounted for the small American unit, their charges became less effective. When they had done all they could do, Lord Sterling told them to withdraw to Brooklyn Heights. General George Washington watched the display from the rampart of Cobble Hill Fort, about a mile away. He reportedly said, "'What brave fellows I must lose this day.'" 60 to 80% of the 400 who protected the retreat were killed, captured, or wounded. Corporal McMillan recounted some of the losses in his company. "'My captain was killed. First lieutenant was killed, second lieutenant shot through the hand, two sergeants was killed, one in front of me. According to one count, fewer than 10 American soldiers survived the engagement without serious injury or capture. No one knows the exact number or makeup of the American soldiers who made the stand at the old stone house that day. Estimates range from 250 to 400 and while most of them were from the 1st Maryland Regiment, there were almost certainly men from Delaware and Pennsylvania mixed in as well. They all fought side by side throughout the battle, and in the chaos of the day, it should be expected that the units became mixed up. Lord Sterling needed some men who were willing to fight to the death to allow the rest of the army to survive. A few hundred men did so, and Sterling didn't care where they were from. At some point afterward, someone called the group The Maryland 400 And the name must have been passed down Through the generations Its first documented appearance in print Came in 1895 When the Baltimore Sun newspaper Referred to the men as Maryland's Noble 400 Two years later A book called them The Immortal Maryland 400 And from there The legend only grew But back on the battlefield The fight was essentially done the 400 had performed a heroic service. Their overall commander, Lord Sterling, had been captured by Hessian soldiers. And now, more than 20,000 British troops were closing in on the series of American forts at Brooklyn Heights. Next time on Mission History, the year that started with such promise for the American cause turns bleak. The British Army pushes the American Army all the way out of New York and then challenges the American capital at Philadelphia. General George Washington only staves off total disaster by engineering desperate and daring actions in New Jersey. After just one year of war, the American cause hangs by a thread. That's next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Jeremy Schwartz performing the Declaration of Independence, James Scott as John Adams, Michael Goodrick as the unnamed Maryland soldier, and Greg Hensley as Mordecai Gist. This series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer, our executive producers are Kerry Briggs for the Historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q Code. Marketing lead for Q Code was Ellie Kotapish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian for the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Paikooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davy, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening.